0: I'd like to thank ExpressVPN for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Did you know that your internet service provider like Comcast or Verizon knows every single website you use? You can use my exclusive expressvpn.com slash gold link and get three months free. Well, we had some huge moves in the stock markets today, the currency markets, the precious metals markets the bond market. The catalyst for all these moves, some up, some down, was announcement early this morning that the US drug company Pfizer, in partnership with a German company, uh, BioNTech, have some very promising results in their current studies for their COVID vaccine. They announced that the vaccine, at least at this point in the trials, is proving to be 90% effective as a vaccine against covid and that seems like a very high rate and so everybody is very excited about the potential for this vaccine number 1 we don't know for sure if this vaccine is going to get approved you know they have not completed the trials i read that the fda still wants to see a couple of months more at a minimum of data not sure if they're looking at the data for the efficacy of the a vaccine, but whether or not it produces any side effects. And I think they need more time to evaluate those. Of course, you don't want to risk a side effect that's actually worse uh, than the disease itself. I'm not sure uh, how much more data they need or how many more trials they need. But one thing I know for sure, if we do get a COVID vaccine from this particular product, it's not going to happen this year. In fact, it's not going to happen during the coming flu season. I wouldn't imagine that we would have any kind of vaccine on the market before the springtime, which means it's not going to do anything to prevent a second wave of COVID or any kind of economic damage that may occur as a result of any kind of lockdowns or other policies that governments pursue in order to mitigate the spread of the disease. So to the extent that this is going to be a positive for the global economy, it's not a positive in the immediate term. It's at least maybe six months to a year away from where we would start seeing the gains that might accrue from the fact that now people have a a vaccine and they're more likely to expose themselves to COVID if they don't think they're gonna get it. Although one of the things we don't even know yet about this vaccine, is this gonna be like, you get it once and now you're inoculated, you're done, and you never have to worry about COVID again. And by the way, there are two shots, I think you have to space out uh, both shots. Uh, But it's also possible that this could be an annual thing, like the flu shots that we have now every year, you gotta come up and you gotta get another COVID vaccine. And of course, not everybody gets flu shots. I mean, I get them sometimes, I don't get them all the time. So is this vaccine gonna be another seasonal flu shot where people decide each year whether they wanna get it? Are they gonna have to tweak it every year because maybe uh, the, the, the strain mutates a little bit and now last year's vaccine isn't gonna work again and need to come up with another one? I don't know, there's still a lot of unknown questions That need to be answered here yet it didn't stop traders from making very big bets just based on the announcement alone and i think the reason for these huge moves in so many stocks has to do with all of the leverage in the system right now and all of the highly speculative money that is in the markets now as a result of fed and other central banks and all the artificially low interest rates that has turned the stock markets into casinos. And that's really what's going on. And that's why you've got these huge moves. I mean, first of all, the markets, which initially surged on the news, surrendered a lot of their gains later in the day. The Dow Jones, at one point, was up better than 1,700 points. And in fact, it achieved those gains pre-market. But it did manage to hold on uh, to that level when the market actually opened but at the close the Dow was up just 834 points. Now I say just 834 points, that's still a big move, but it's half the 1700 points uh, that we had earlier in the morning in the first hour. So the Dow was up just under 3%, but it was up about 6% at the high. Same thing with the s and and p closed up about 1%, but on the highs, it was up about 4%. But both the S&P and the Dow did make new all-time record highs. In fact, the Dow almost made it to 30000 Not quite. And we flirted with that level last time, and we got close again this time. We got to 29933 Close, but no $30,000 cigar. By the time we finish the day, we're back down to 29157 Probably the star on the day, though, was the Russell 2000 because this was the index that had never made a new high. Remember, I've been focusing on the weakness in the Russell 2000 because of all the indexes. It's the one index that never took out its high from summer of 2018 until today. It actually took out that high by a couple of points. I mean, it didn't blow it out, uh, but it eclipsed it by a couple of points. We got up to 1745.69 And I don't remember exactly what that old high was, but it was around 1742, 1743-ish. So we didn't blow through it. We touched above it. Of course, then we closed significantly below that level. We closed at 1705, but still up 3.7% on the day. So that was the biggest rise of any of the indexes. Now, on the flip side, the NASDAQ was down on the day and- It also made a new all-time record high. It got above 12,000. I forget if it did that before. I think it did. Uh, I think, yeah, I think the last high was around 12,074. This time we got to 12,108, but we could not hold. And we ended up closing with a loss of just over 1.5%. The NASDAQ down 181.45. And I think we closed pretty much on the low of the day, So that looks to me like there's going to be some follow-on selling tomorrow. Now, the reason this happened, of course, is everybody wanted to buy the uh, turn the economy back on stocks and they wanted to sell the COVID stay-at-home stocks, right? If the economy is going to recover, then you you buy the stocks that are economically sensitive. The biggest gainers, of course, were in the travel industry because travel has had the biggest hit from COVID. Look at Carnival Cruise Line. That stock was up 37% in one day. The airlines got a big boost. United Airlines was lifted about 17%. Those are some big, big moves. But it wasn't just in the most beat-up sectors as far as travel or hospitality. But the oil stocks, which had also gotten beaten up pretty badly, those are stocks that I've been buying. In fact, When we went into the COVID decline, as a strategy, we were underweight uh, oil. And during the decline, we have gone from an underweight in energy to an overweight. And we have used this weakness as an opportunity because I really believe that they've been giving away these energy stocks. And they had a nice day today. Some of the names that we own, uh, British Petroleum was up 15.5% today. Uh, Total was up 15.2%. Royal Dutch up 13.5%. Those are some big moves. Oil itself was up over $3. I think at one point it was up over $4. The idea is people have COVID vaccines. They're going to travel more, right? They're going to take uh, cruises. They're going to fly in airlines. They're going to stay in hotels. And obviously, if they're going to travel more, well, You know, all those industries are going to use more energy. And so that's benefiting uh, the oil market. On the flip side, all the stocks that benefited from the fact that people weren't traveling, the fact that they were staying at home, those stocks got clobbered today. Look at some of the marquee names, the Peloton, right, the interactive. You know, you don't go to the gym. You just buy a Peloton and you work out at home. That stock was down 19.5% today today one day. That shows you how dangerous these stocks are. And they're still way overvalued. I mean, this is just a taste of what's ultimately going to happen to these stocks, whether this is the beginning of the collapse or just, you know, just giving you a window into what's ultimately going to happen down the road when the stocks do collapse. Zoom Video, another one of the darlings of the stay-at-home uh, trade, that stock down 16.5% today. sign. Another big one, a recent IPO, right? You don't sign the documents in person. You sign them on uh, your, your cell phone or whatever. Stock was down 14.5%. Shopify, down 13.5%. People staying at home and, and shopping online. Some of the other big names, not down as much, but bigger market cap names, Netflix, right? Everybody's staying at home watching Netflix, Netflix was down 8.5% today, Square down 7%, NVIDIA down 6%. So there's a lot of these stocks that were benefiting from the COVID trade that obviously are, are deflating if that COVID bubble has popped. But while stocks were going up, bonds were going down, and they were going down hard. Not a lot of coverage of the carnage in the bond market today. Uh, But there was a lot of blood out there. Look at the 10-year spiking up to 0.958. So we're almost all the way up to 1%. And 1% may not sound like a lot, but remember, the low was 0.4%. So that means the yields on the 10-year has more than doubled off that low, which is a big loss if you happen to buy the 10-year when it was yielding under 40 basis points and now it's almost 100 basis points look at what's going on in the 30 year the yield there is now back up to one spot 751 percent and remember that yield too was south of one percent it got down to about 0.84 basis points so here the yield has more than doubled off that low which from percentage point is a big loss to whoever's sitting on uh, you know the that buy whoever bought the high in the bond market but the losses I think are going to get a lot bigger if we can see the yield on the 30 year move up a little bit maybe back above 2% which is not that far from 1 and 3 quarters we move above 2% we could make a beeline for 3% very very quickly remember it was not that long ago that the yield touched 4%. That was back in 2019. But we make a move up to 3%. That is a big, big problem for the Federal Reserve. I don't think the Federal Reserve is going to sit back and allow yields to rise to that degree. Because we had a problem when the repo market was blowing up, right? That's the reason back in 2019, before covid That's why the Fed quietly restarted QE because of the problems in in, in the short end of the curve. Well, if we get a bigger problem in the long end, if we start to see 30-year bonds tanking, 10-year bonds tanking, that is big trouble for the whole financial system, uh, not to mention the housing market. I mean, a big part of this recovery story is the boom in the housing sector entirely made possible by the Fed and mortgage interest rates below 3%. Well, all that's going to be a thing of the past if we see a surge in bond yields. And why are bond yields surging? Well, if people are starting to look beyond uh, the COVID mountain into the valley of economic growth that supposedly lies on the other side, what's going to happen? Well, the Fed has to start hiking interest rates, right? The economy is coming back. So the Fed needs to respond Uh, By raising interest rates and withdrawing all of that emergency liquidity that it supplied uh, when the COVID emergency was still going. Except it's impossible to do that because we now have a bigger addiction to stimulus than ever before. You see, what traders still don't understand is the US government and the Federal Reserve, and not just the US government, but state and local governments, they have combined to do far more damage to the economy than COVID-19. And so the problem is not really the fact that we have a disease, but that we're addicted to the cure, which was cheap money and all this debt. And so now it's the addiction to the cure that's the real problem. The disease doesn't even matter anymore because even if we get rid of the disease, we're still addicted to the cure and the Fed can't take away the cure Without causing an even bigger problem than the initial disease that the cure was meant, you know, to, to cure, right? Because now the problem isn't the disease. Who cares about that? The problem is the cure that was so addicting, and now we got a bigger problem than the one we started with. And that problem's not going away. There is no antidote or vaccine that's going to work for that. We are stuck with that. And in fact, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, because this vaccine is not going to come on the scene right now, right, we're still going to have to deal with the problems of the potential spread of this disease into this flu season, this winter, with Joe Biden, most likely the president of the United States. And he's already starting to announce uh, a greater crackdown with respect to his fight. And after all, he criticized Trump dramatically about his response to COVID-19. So clearly he can't just become president and do exactly what Trump did. So whether it's right or wrong, he's gonna have to start really cracking down more uh, on on the economy to try to do a better job of limiting the spread of the disease. And he doesn't care about any of the economic uh, consequences. Because as far as he's concerned, you know, we can make up for all that with government spending and with the Federal Reserve. In fact, I read a story today that one of the people that is under consideration by Biden to be the next Secretary of the Treasury is none other than Janet Yellen herself. Now, I suppose Janet Yellen may be better than the other woman that a lot of people were talking about, Elizabeth Warren, Uh, but still... Uh, Janet Yellen is a super dove, right? She is a Democrat. That's why Obama appointed her in the first place, right? Because she came uh, from that perspective. But she was not a good Fed chairman. Remember, she only managed one rate hike during the entire time she was on the Fed. I mean, she did a pretty good job of bluffing, but she really left all the rate hikes to um, Powell. Although, no, no, she did do a second rate hike. I believe, uh, after Trump was elected, right? She didn't do any uh, rate hikes until, other than that first one in December of 2015, she didn't deliver her second rate hike until Trump had already beaten Hillary Clinton in November of 2016. And she may have, I forget, continued to raise rates before Powell came in and did the real heavy lifting uh, by moving rates up many, many times. But, I don't think that Yellen ever would have raised rates a second time had Hillary Clinton won. I think it was one and done until Donald Trump came along. And once Trump was there, well, then, you know, she was willing to raise rates. But I think Biden wants Janet Yellen because he knows that she's going to be very, very accommodative when it comes to running up the debt. She's not going to have any opposition to big deficit spending. And she has friends, obviously, on the Fed. And the scary part about having an ex-Fed chair as a sitting Secretary of the Treasury is you know that she has these relationships. And she worked on the FOMC with current members of the FOMC. So this kind of tears apart even the pretense of some type of separation that we actually have an independent Federal Reserve when it's a former Fed chairman, uh, recent Fed chairman, who is now secretary of the treasury, who will be working with the, the new Fed chairman. Obviously, she already has a relationship where she knows all the other people that are there, most of the players, and who knows, again, who is gonna be the next Fed chair, because I don't believe that Biden is going to reappoint Powell, although it is possible that he'll do that. But most likely he's gonna want his own guy in there. And and so he's gonna pick somebody else maybe who has an even better relationship uh, with Yellen. And so this all really shows you the direction that we're going in massive, massive money printing. And this is gonna continue. Doesn't matter if this vaccine actually works and comes to the market because COVID is the smaller problem now compared to the much larger problem created by governments and central banks. And all that debt and all that money printing doesn't go away even if COVID goes away. And even if COVID goes away, we don't know if it's going to come back. Maybe there's going to be a COVID-20 and a COVID-21. I have no idea. But also, I think that COVID has now set the standard for how we respond to any new infectious disease. You know, we're just going to shut things down and ask questions later. So this is a whole new level of risk that has been entered into the economy and now has to be priced in to the goods and services that every business provides because everybody has to realize this. And insurance companies who may be on the hook for losses that relate to this. They have to start pricing this into their premiums, and so now businesses have to, you know, absorb the cost of higher premiums. The whole global economy is going to be less efficient for a long, long time as a result of what just happened. You know, even if this uh, vaccine gets on the market, but. If it does, we still have to deal with all the debt and all the money that was printed before we got the vaccine and all the debt and all the money that's going to be printed between the time they developed the vaccine and the time it's actually in use. Right? And It's going to take a while. And then, of course, people are going to have to be convinced to trust the vaccine. A lot of people will be afraid to take the vaccine. So how long will it take before people are willing to take it? And remember, the governments are already building up a big culture of people who are benefiting from COVID. And COVID gives them the excuse that they're looking for not to have to work. Remember, there are a lot of people that have jobs they don't like, they're tedious, right? They're boring, they have long commutes. They would rather not go to work and get paid. And if they can do that, by claiming they're worried about getting COVID or they're worried that the vaccine doesn't work, they want an excuse to not have to go to work. They would rather to continue to ride uh, the COVID gravy train and milk it as long as they can. And I think a Biden presidency and a lot of the Democrats in Congress are not going to uh, ignore that because they want that. They want to be able to have voters dependent on government largesse, and so this is an excuse and get more people hooked on this uh, government heroin, which brings me to the reaction in the gold market, right? Gold got clobbered today. Gold was down about 80 bucks, uh, about a little over 4%, right? Almost 4.5% drop in the price of gold. That's a big move. I mean- it's not unprecedented, and I've seen uh, the price of gold move down by more than that. But it's a big move. And in fact, I think at one point during the day, we were down closer to $100. Um, as I'm looking at right now, we are, we're down maybe about $85, $86 on the day. We were trading on gold above $1,960 an ounce this morning. We were up you know, $10, $12 last night. And now we're $100 lower than that, trading at you know, 1860s. But still, I don't think that this does anything to disrupt the underlying uptrend that exists in the price of gold. And of course, a lot of the gold stocks got hit even harder than gold itself, although they held up pretty good considering how big the drop in gold was. The GDX was only down just over 6%. Now, that is a big move, but not when gold is down 4.5%. And GDXJ was down actually slightly less, 6.09%. Normally, you would expect the juniors to be killed on a day when gold's down 4.5%. But they weren't. I mean, they were down, but they weren't slaughtered. So there is some smart money out there that is buying these dips in these miners. I understand the initial leveraged... Uh, reaction to the news, right? Sell all the safe havens, sell anything that benefited from COVID. And that's why all these stay-at-home stocks got killed. But that's also why gold went down, because a lot of people just assume that gold benefited from the COVID trade. In fact, other safe haven currencies that people would have bought also got clobbered. The biggest losers today were the Japanese yen And the Swiss franc, the Japanese yen, was down about 2% against the dollar. I think the Swissy was down maybe one to one and a half. I forget exactly. But the dollar index or the dollar itself was down against most currencies uh, because you had strength in a lot of the commodity currencies, a lot of the emerging market currencies. Again, these were the currencies that really got hurt as everybody was worried about COVID and going into the safe haven currencies like the yen and the Swiss franc and the dollar. And so they sold those currencies now just the way they sold the COVID stay-at-home stocks. And I think the weakness in the Swiss franc and in the yen also work to pull down the price of gold, because gold does have a pretty strong correlation to those currencies, particularly the Japanese yen. I mean, if you look back over the last few years, you'll see a pretty strong correlation uh, in a positive way between the yen and the price of gold. So a big drop in the yen generally would mean a big drop in the price of gold. And and that is what happened today. And the same thing again with the bond market, right? The bond market was considered a safe haven uh, in, you know, the times of COVID, people were worried about the economy, they're worried about all sorts of stuff, people defaulting, and they were piling into treasury. So people unwound that, right? Today was risk on and safety off. And believe it or not, people were taking refuge. People looked at these stay-at-home COVID stocks, like Netflix, as being some kind of port in the COVID storm. Like it was a safe haven. I remember talking about that on the podcast, how ridiculous it was that people regarded these overpriced tech names uh, as being safe havens just because everybody was piling into them because they were worried about COVID. Okay, well, what happens when COVID is over and everybody wants to pile out? But I think gold is very different because gold is not really a safe haven from COVID. Gold is a safe haven from the COVID cure, at least the government cure. It's a safe haven from the monetary and fiscal policy mistakes that were made in reaction to COVID. That's why gold was going up, And it's because the government is going to continue to make the same monetary policy and fiscal policy mistakes after COVID. That's why gold is going to keep going up. And in fact, because of all the money they printed before COVID, because of all the extra debt that we accumulated during COVID now, that's why the Fed can't dial it back. That's why If the economy recovers from covid it can never recover from the addiction to stimulus that's why the stimulus have to continue long after the disease that it was meant to cure goes away that means inflation is going to run out of control and even if you measure it by consumer prices because what's going to happen demand is going to pick back up as a result of people returning to more economic activity but supply is going to come back with a lag, right? Demand can be turned on like a switch. Supply can't, right? Supply requires investment and production. And to the extent that a lot of these supply chains have shut down and production has been turned off, it doesn't come on you know, like a switch. It takes some time to recall all these factors of production and get them back into use again. And so in the meantime, you have demand outstripping. Uh, supply, and that puts upward pressure on prices. But in the meantime, they're going to keep on printing money. The central banks are not going to respond to an uptick in economic activity by tightening conditions. They're not going to raise interest rates. They're not going to do more quantitative tightening because then they have to worry about popping the bubble that they inflated even bigger uh, during the COVID days. They're more concerned about that than the disease itself. So they have no choice now. I mean, they have a choice if they wanna do the right thing, but they have no choice because doing the right thing will be so painful. So they have to keep the monetary pedal to the metal, even though we have a COVID vaccine that potentially works. And even as the economy is coming back to normal, it's coming back to normal with a completely abnormal amount of debt. And there's no way to allow interest rates to rise to any level of normalcy with that amount of debt overhanging the market because then it's not going to matter about a COVID rebound. It's going to be a debt collapse. The economy is going to implode under the weight of all the debt that we accumulated while we were stimulating the economy while COVID was around. It's not going to matter that it's not there because now we're going to have to deal with the problem of all that debt and all that money printing. And so the only way to delay Dealing with that problem is to delay the tightening, is to keep the monetary spigots open regardless. So, people who are selling gold because they think, oh, that means the Fed's going to raise rates and we don't have to worry about that and they're not going to be printing as much money, they, they don't have a clue. And in fact, if the Federal Reserve really was going to start tightening uh, up on policy, if they were going to start raising interest rates, Because of a COVID vaccine, the stock market would have crashed today. It wouldn't be down at all. I mean, it would have gone way down. Stock market investors realize that there's no way the Fed is going to hike rates. Doesn't matter what happens with a COVID vaccine. It's just that the gold traders, you know, don't know that. Or maybe because there's less liquidity in there. Maybe that market is more easily manipulated on a daily basis. But that's where the big buying opportunity is. Because the gold bull market hasn't been disrupted at all. In fact, I still don't think at you know, 1900 that the gold market has even begun to really price in the effects of all the monetary stimulus that has already taken place. Forget about the new stimulus that's going to take place in the future. They haven't even factored in what's happened in the past. And when you throw a President Biden into the mix, which means you're going to have a government that's going to be even more likely to spend and more likely to borrow, therefore you're going to have a Federal Reserve that's going to be printing even more money, right? The monetary excesses of the future are going to be much greater than the excesses of the past, and so the price of gold has a long way to go. Everyone knows that I've moved to Puerto Rico and a lot of times I'm in Puerto Rico and some of the content that I want to look at on the internet is not available in Puerto Rico. But when I fire up my ExpressVPN, I'm now able to access that content because the people providing it don't know I'm in Puerto Rico. They think I'm somewhere in the United States. ExpressVPN reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your internet provider can't see or log what you do online. Now many of you might be wondering, well, if I'm routing all my data through a VPN, doesn't that mean the VPN will see what I'm doing instead? And it makes sense to think that. And there are other VPN providers that have no log policies, but have actually been caught tracking what their customers do. That's why I use ExpressVPN. It's the VPN that I trust to keep my data private. They were the first major VPN provider to engineer all their VPN servers to run in RAM. This makes it impossible for their VPN servers to store any data, including logs and any ExpressVPN customers. And you don't have to take my word or even ExpressVPN's word for it. ExpressVPN is so confident in their no log claims that they even have one of the biggest insurance companies, PricewaterhouseCoopers, audited their technology it's no wonder that CNET and Wired named ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. So stop letting people keep logs of what you do online. Visit expressvpn.com slash gold right now and find out how you can get three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash gold. Expressvpn.com slash gold to learn more. One thing about today's market, though, that I did think was kind of interesting had to do with Bitcoin, because I think Bitcoin actually showed the least amount of volatility. I mean, Bitcoin actually rose early this morning, and that rally made no sense to me. It kind of rose with the stock market when the COVID um, vaccine was announced, and Bitcoin got up to 15850 And that really didn't make any sense to me why it would be rallying. Why would that be good news for Bitcoin? Uh, And then I think people thought about it, and Bitcoin sold off, but it never even got much below 15000 I think the lowest it got was like 14825 uh, eight ish or something like that. And then it quickly snapped back and it ended up closing at about 15400 I don't know about closing because it doesn't really close, but that's kind of where it is now. Uh, but that's about where it was before the COVID news came out. So it popped up a little bit, sold off, and then kind of came right back down to about exactly where it was before we got any of the COVID news, which to me represents a relatively you know, small amount of volatility in what is normally a very volatile asset. Don't necessarily know what to make of that, whether that's a bullish thing, whether it's a bearish thing. Uh, you know, Obviously, Bitcoin took out the 2019 high. Uh, it's yet to take out the 2017 high. I still think that it's more likely uh, that it won't take that high out But it might. Look, the the Russell 2000 managed to take out its 2018 high, uh, so maybe uh, Bitcoin can take out its 2017 high. If it does, I don't expect it to be able to build a base of support above that level, the way gold has been able to trade above its old highs. I don't think that's going to happen at all. I don't think any of what's happening is bullish for for Bitcoin. In fact, one of the things that nobody's probably considered is how the Biden administration may react to Bitcoin as far as its regulatory position, its executive orders. Because I think the Biden administration potentially would be a lot less friendly to Bitcoin than the Trump administration. I think the Trump administration was more likely to allow the market to come up with alternatives. Uh, But I don't know that the Biden administration uh, would be that, that, you know, free market oriented. I think they may look at Bitcoin as a potential threat. Um, A lot of the people in the Bitcoin community uh, are more advocates of small government. They don't like central banks. They don't like big government spending. They're kind of like me. Uh, And they also talk about Bitcoin uh, dethroning the dollar, replacing the dollar. If you are trying to run a welfare state, Uh, That's the last thing that you want, right? If you are a big government guy like Biden and you want universal basic income or you want a Green New Deal, you need the dollar to reign supreme because you have to keep running big deficits without the dollar crashing. And to the extent that they believe rightly or wrongly that maybe Bitcoin represent some type of threat to dollar hegemony and therefore a threat to their ability to continue to run huge deficits at low interest rates, they could crack down on on Bitcoin pretty hard. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, something like that happened early in the Biden administration uh, and there were to be a big reaction in the market to that. Now, I know some people might think, well, no, there's probably some big tech donors Uh, that are involved in the crypto space. But look, (laughs) there's a lot of other people, a lot of big bankers uh, that are going to be in bed with Biden. And I think they're going to carry a lot more weight on his administration than some of these tech guys. And clearly, you know, they're going to be in the camp of, hey, let's regulate Bitcoin. Uh, And so, you know, the fact that people are celebrating the Biden victory Uh, by buying bitcoin that doesn't make any sense to me i mean if you think oh let's we're going to buy bitcoin because a biden is you know more inflation bigger government and people are going to move into bitcoin as an inflation hedge you can make that argument i think it's a much better argument to say that you're going to buy gold as an inflation hedge i still don't see bitcoin trading with gold i mean yes bitcoin uh fell today when gold fell, but it also fell when Peloton fell and when DocuSign fell and Zoom uh, video. I mean, I think Bitcoin is more correlated with those types of assets than it is with gold. And yes, I think Bitcoin has benefited from COVID the same way that those assets have benefited from COVID. I think people are speculating in Bitcoin in this environment in the same manner that they're speculating uh, in these other stocks. But at the end of the day, I think the only safe haven that's going to be left standing when this crisis is over is going to be gold and, obvi- and silver as well, because those are the only safe havens from inflation. Those are the only monetary alternatives to the dollar and other fiat currencies. People in the Bitcoin space may believe that Bitcoin is a monetary alternative, but it's not. That that e- exists in the fantasies of uh, Bitcoin hodlers only. It doesn't exist in reality. And as much as people wanna believe that, it's all part of the hype. It has nothing to do with the reality. It's the sizzle, it's not the steak. So when the speculative uh, manias end, and we see a collapse in all the assets that attracted all this spec money, uh, Bitcoin is one of the assets that's going to collapse. Oh, I want to finish up the podcast, though. I had a number of people who had reached out to me about Puerto Rico and the new vote for statehood. You know, one of the things that was on the ballot and I voted, this was my first time that I voted as a Puerto Rican. Of course, I'm still an American, but I'm an American living in Puerto Rico. And as a result, I can't vote for the president anymore. And we don't have any congressional delegation, so I don't have a a congressman. I don't have a representative or a senator to vote for. But I was able to vote for governor and for the mayor of my town. Uh, And uh, another thing that was on the ballot was this straight up and down vote. Should Puerto Rico be uh, admitted immediately into the union as a state? Yes or no? And I voted no. But unfortunately, about 52% of my fellow Puerto Ricans voted yes. And so once again, a referendum on statehood has passed and people have voted to become a state. But still, 48% of the population voted not to become a state. So right there, you know that there isn't an overwhelming desire for statehood, right? It's pretty much evenly split. I mean, slightly in favor of statehood. But I mean, that's basically the people who voted. I mean, maybe the people who came to the polls who want statehood are more motivated to vote. And it's not binding. I don't it doesn't mean that we're going to be a state. I mean, maybe if there was actually some kind of binding vote, maybe some of the people who are against statehood may be more motivated to show up in the polls. But let's say it's, you know, it's pretty evenly split. It's not like 80 90 percent of the Puerto Ricans are dying to become a state they're not and and so given the fact that statehood passed by a slim margin, I really don't see any real motivation uh, certainly among Republicans to admit Puerto Rico as a state I mean obviously this gives them an excuse not to because they clearly don't want two more Democratic senators screwing up uh, their t- ability to, to ever get into the majority. But I think the fact that the vote was narrow gives the Republicans who most likely will have control of the U.S. Senate. The only way that they would lose is if uh, Georgia elects two Democratic senators. And I don't think that's going to happen. They're more likely to elect two Republicans than two Democrats. Uh, But it is possible uh, that that could be the outcome. Maybe there's a 20 percent, 25 percent probability at best that that is going to be the outcome Um, But if Republicans have control of the Senate and you have a a vote in Puerto Rico that is so slim in favor of statehood, there really is no reason uh, for the Republican senators to, you know, even consider Puerto Rico as a state. And they can always point to the fact that, look, 48 percent of the population doesn't want to be a state. So why should we force statehood? on 48% of the population who don't want it. And I believe that a much greater percentage of the population would oppose statehood if they actually understood what it means. See, the problem is a lot of the people have been sold a bill of goods, that statehood is some kind of panacea, that all the problems of Puerto Rico are gonna disappear if only we were a state, which to me is so ridiculous because the biggest problem that Puerto Rico has is too much government. Well, if we become a state, we're going to have a lot more government than we have now because we're going to have the federal government on top of the state government, which would be the local government now. The Puerto Rican government would become the state government. And now we would inherit the federal government, along with the cost of paying for it, which is enormous. Right? I've talked about it on this podcast before. But Puerto Ricans do not pay the federal income tax. They do not pay the federal you know, Obamacare tax, the vast majority of Puerto Ricans pay zero federal income taxes. Now, to the extent they have foreign sourced income, right, income from outside of Puerto Rico, then they would pay some federal tax. But if they're working for wages, they have a job in Puerto Rico and they get a paycheck, not a dime of federal income tax comes out of their pay. And they don't even have to file a federal tax return. That is a huge advantage that everybody in Puerto Rico enjoys, at least everybody who works and has wages that would be subject to the income tax if Puerto Rico was a state. And you might think, so, gee, why, would, why would anybody want to give that up? Who would want to go from a situation of having no uh, income tax, no IRS, to having the income tax? And the reason is there's a lot of people in Puerto Rico who don't work. So they wouldn't pay the federal income tax even if it existed. Or they work and they have a low paying job and, and they wouldn't be subject to the tax. I mean, we pay the payroll tax. People in Social Security now pay into Social Security. Of course, they also are entitled to draw on Social Security benefits. I mean, not that those are going to actually be there in the future, but people think they're going to be there. So they're paying that tax. But in theory, they're paying that for the future Social Security benefits. And they enjoy the same benefits based on their level of taxation, because the tax rate is the same. So your social security benefits are the same if you're in Puerto Rico or any of the states. The benefits that are lower are welfare benefits and other uh, uh, benefits that would come under the welfare umbrella. And the big selling point to Puerto Ricans is, hey, if we're a state, you'll get a bigger welfare check. You're, you're getting short change, right? You're not getting as much welfare as you would get if you were in welfare in a, another state, right? That's that's the selling point. Also, you know, maybe we'd get, if we had a congressman, we'd get more federal money spent in our district, in our state, because we'd have, you know, our own people in Washington lobbying uh, for our share of the, the the pie. But that's so ridiculous because when you the, the states send their representatives to Washington, they're sending them there to try to get back some of their tax dollars, right? The states send all this money Uh, income tax money to Washington, and then they send congressmen to Washington to try to get some of that money back. Well, we don't send any income tax money to Washington, so therefore we don't have to waste our time trying to get back what we already had. I mean, it's irrational to say, hey, let's become a state so that we can lobby to get back some of our tax dollars when we keep all of our tax dollars now by not being a state. We don't need to lobby to get it back because it never leaves in the first place. So that's all a bunch of nonsense, as is the idea that more welfare is good for Puerto Rico. It's not. I mean, first of all, yes, Puerto Ricans get less welfare, but the cost of living is lower. I mean, the wages on the island are lower. Uh, So it, it would make sense that the welfare benefits were lower. If the welfare benefits in Puerto Rico were as high as they were in the mainland, it would be even harder to hire people here. You know, We would create a bigger barrier to employment. I mean, the last thing Puerto Rico needs is a more generous welfare system. What we need is a more vibrant free market economy. We don't want more people on welfare because it's more lucrative. We want more people working because that's more lucrative. But when you introduce the income tax, you make working less lucrative. So you you reduce the incentive to work. And then with higher welfare, you increase the incentive not to work. So that would be a disaster, you know, Puerto Rico statehood. And the other big problem for Puerto Rico, if it becomes a state, is sure, there are a lot of people who don't pay income taxes or much income taxes, but their employers do. <laughs> so are, they're not going to have jobs if their employers have to start paying the income tax on top of these, these, the uh, state tax, which is 33%. That's the tax rate right now, 33%. You add uh, a higher uh, federal income tax, I mean, people in Puerto Rico are gonna be in the 80, 90% bracket. How many employers can afford to stay in business if they have a partner, the US government, the Puerto Rican government, taking 80, 90% of their income? It's impossible. So all the employers would have to leave the island. They'd all go out of business. It'd be a gigantic welfare state. Everybody would have a welfare check, but nothing to buy because there'd be no place to spend your welfare money because there'd be no businesses. Again, I guess the government would have to run all the businesses, but that doesn't work very well. You know, just ask anybody who's fled a communist country uh, how efficiently governments run businesses. But the reason I brought this up is people were asking me, hey, is there a danger that Puerto Rico may become a state? Because I was thinking of moving there, and now I'm a little worried uh, because of the statehood vote. My, my feeling would be that there's very, very low probability uh, of Puerto Rican statehood in the near term. I mean, is it possible that eventually, somewhere in the future, Puerto Rico could become a state? Sure, but I don't think it's an immediate threat. And so I think that if people are thinking about moving to Puerto Rico, I would not not move here because you're worried uh, that it's going to become a state. I mean, worst case scenario, it becomes a state. I mean, you're living in a state right now. I mean, at least if you come here and you get these special uh, tax exemptions, Uh, Worst case scenario is that you still have zero local capital gains taxes and you pay a four percent tax on your business income. So, you know, not quite as good as Florida. Right. If Puerto Rico becomes a state, uh, if you move here now, it'll be not quite as good a deal as you can get in Florida. But it's still going to be an improvement on New York, you know, New Jersey, California. So you're still in better shape. Granted, you know, now you have to pay the federal income tax, so you're not in as good a shape as you would have been had Puerto Rico remained a territory. But even if it becomes a state, I think it's years away at best, right? Even if it's fast-tracked. And even then, if it becomes a state, there is no way it could immediately become a state. Because again, Puerto Rico can't have a 33% local income tax, and 11% sales tax, and uh, have uh, the federal income tax because that would mean Puerto Rico would be the highest tax state and it wouldn't even be close, right? We'd have the highest state income tax, the highest state sales tax, and the same federal income tax as everybody else. It could not survive. So the only way Puerto Rico could be a state is if you gave the island a long enough time, maybe five or 10 years to shrink its local government so that it can lower taxes on the local level to the point where its residents could actually afford to support both the local government, the state government of Puerto Rico and the federal government. So this is gonna be a huge transition. It's gonna take a long time, maybe 10 years, maybe 15 years. That's a lot of time that you can live in Puerto Rico and earn money and not pay taxes. So I think the tax savings over the next five to 10 years could still be worth it even if they end up going away because Puerto Rico becomes a state. The real losers, if Puerto Rico becomes a state, are the poor Puerto Ricans who are going to have to live in the in the poorest state, which will be much poorer uh, than the uh, territory. And in fact, if they followed a more free market-oriented approach, which they're already on somewhat with the tax incentives they already created— You know, in 10 or 15 years, this could be the richest part of America. Puerto Rico could be richer than any state. It can have a higher per capita income. Right now, the per capita income here is half of the lowest state. We can at one point have a per capita income that exceeds the wealthiest state only if we don't become a state. If we become a state, we throw away the only advantage we have. Now, I'm gonna live here long enough uh, to take advantage of the status personally Uh, But, you know, I I live here. I look at Puerto Rico as my home. I I, I have a lot of warm regard for the island and for its culture. And I really want to see it thrive. I really want to see all Puerto Ricans benefit, not just uh, the people who temporarily come here uh, because they can keep more of the money that they earn. Uh, But. In the short run, if you are thinking about coming here for your own personal reasons, if you want to escape the tax hikes uh, that are coming under Biden, and more importantly, you want to escape the tax hikes coming through inflation, one of the most important things that you get when you come to Puerto Rico is you lock in a zero capital gains tax. A lot of people are gonna have phantom capital gains that are gonna be created from inflation. It's not gonna be that your assets are gaining in value, it's that the money you're pricing them in is losing value. There's a lot of people who are gonna sell assets at a paper profit that are actually worth less when they sold them in real terms than when they bought them, but they're gonna be taxed on those phantom gains anyway. So, one way to avoid that is to be in a zero capital gains tax situation, and then the government can't turn a paper gain into a real uh, tax burden on you, and who knows how much higher that capital gains rate is gonna go in the future. That's one of the rates that Biden wants to increase, and even if he can't increase it in his first two years, he may be able to do it in his second two years, and who knows how high it's gonna go. So the best thing that you can do is get yourself into a situation where it doesn't matter because you're not paying the tax, no matter how high it goes. (laughs) we <laughs>